1: The content of today's episode is disturbing and extremely graphic. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Truth and Justice. I observed what appeared to be two small tennis shoes floating uh, in the the creek. I went, uh, we were on top of it, top of a bank there, the, I would say
0: 10-15 foot down to where the creek was, uh, I went to an area where I felt I could cross, uh, which I I, I crossed and went around
1: uh, to the area where these tennis shoes were in, in the water. My intentions were to reach, get into the water and reach for the tennis shoe, at which time. Uh, when I got into the water I, I, felt, a, I felt an object in the water, uh, I raised my right foot up and the body floated to the surface of the water. p.m. on May 6 of 1993, the small city of West Memphis was changed forever. It was at this time when Detective Mike Allen was wading through the narrow creek in the Turtle Hill Woods in an attempt to recover a shoe that he had found floating. When his foot caught on something under the water, as he raised up his right foot, up floated the nude body of an eight year old boy. This body first identified as body number one, then later as Christopher Byers, and then later again corrected to the actual identity of Michael Moore. All of the search efforts at this point completely shut down. Crime scene tape was stretched across the dead end street at the end of West Macaulay by Mayfair Apartments and all available investigators were dispatched to report to the small creek in Turtle Hill. Michael Moore's body was carefully removed from the creek by Detective Allen. Shock set in to everyone on the scene when they discovered that Michael's nude body had been what it was originally described as hogtied, his wrists bound to his ankles as he was laid under the east ditch bank. At this point, the entire area was deemed to be a crime scene and the search was on for Stevie and Christopher and for any forensic evidence that could be found on the scene. Detective Brian Ridge led the investigation when he got into the water and began a grid-type search. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can mail any letter, any package, just by using your own computer and printer. The mail carrier picks it up, and you're done. You can get all of the services of the U.S. Postal Service right from your own desk. You just click Print Mail, and you're done. You can create your Stamps.com account in minutes online with no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. One of the best parts about Stamps.com is that they're convenient. They never close. You can print postage for letters or packages at your convenience 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com is going to make that process super easy for you because they're going to send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need. And they'll even help you decide the best class of mail for your needs. And with Stamps.com, you don't have to lease an expensive postage meter. I personally use Stamps.com on a daily basis. It's the only way we mail packages here out of the studio. We do that because our time and our money are important to us. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage, and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in TRUTH. That's Stamps.com. Enter TRUTH. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. After Mike Allen discovered the body of Michael Moore and placed him on the East Ditch Bank, Detective Brian Ridge entered the water. In his trial testimony, Ridge describes the process of searching for any other evidence in the other two boys as slowly moving side by side across the creek, swiping with his hands along the muddy bottom, then slowly moving forward one foot at a time. Ridge began his search by moving downstream from Moore's body. With only two options on directions to move, Ridge chose wisely. The first thing that he found under the water as he moved just a few feet away from Michael Moore's body was a stick that had been jammed down into the mud. As he dislodged the stick, he realized that there was a shirt wrapped around the stick and jammed down into the mud near Moore's body. As he continued this process over and over again, he continued to find more and more sticks. Every stick had articles of clothing wrapped around it, and it was jammed down into the mud. This, no doubt, was an attempt by the killer to keep the clothing from floating downstream into the main bayou. As Ridge moved further downstream, he came across a branch that was laying across the creek. The branch had caught a couple of items of clothing that had floated up to the surface and were traveling downstream. Up against the branch were three floating shoes. There were two white tennis shoes and a black tennis shoe, and there was also a Boy Scout cap. As Brian Ridge continued to move downstream, he continued to find more articles of clothing jammed into the mud with sticks. Then approximately 27 feet downstream from where Michael Moore's body had been located, Detective Ridge made the second horrible discovery that day. He felt another body under the water. As he raised the body out of the water, the victim was immediately identified as Stevie Branch. Even in the muddy water, his bright blonde hair quickly gave his identity away. Just like Michael Moore, Stevie was also found nude, with his wrists bound to his ankles. However, unlike Michael Moore, Stevie had some obvious injuries that were immediately noticeable. The entire left side of his face was covered in cuts and blood. Stevie's body was then placed on the West Ditch Bank, and Brian Ridge continued to search. He didn't make it far downstream from Stevie Branch's body before the final member of the trio was discovered. Christopher Byers was found approximately five feet downstream from Stevie Branch. As Byers was removed from the water, It was noted that he, too, was completely nude, with his wrists bound to his ankles. Byers also had a very noticeable injury. It appeared that Christopher Byers had been castrated. Further examination of Christopher's body would reveal that his scrotum and his testicles were missing, and his penis was still intact but had been skinned. This, to this date, is the most horrible, disturbing, and disgusting scenes that I've ever come across. After Christopher Byers' body was removed from the water and placed on the ditch bank next to Stevie Branch, Ridge would turn around and look back upstream and see three nude, hogtied, eight-year-old boys laying on the banks of that narrow creek. What in the world could possibly cause someone to commit such a horrible act? This was the job of the investigators, to get past the emotional trauma of finding these boys and start doing their job to figure out who did it and why. Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell made a good call at this point. It was obvious that most of the forensic evidence that could be discovered on the scene would be found under the water. Ridge ordered for sandbags and what's known as a trash pump to be brought out to the crime scene. The creek was dammed up with the sandbags, and a trash pump was used to divert the flowing water away from the area where the boys' bodies were found, essentially draining the creek. the crime scene investigation was beginning, there were two obvious items of evidence that were missing, Stevie Branch and Michael Moore's bikes. It didn't take long to realize that the boys' bikes were not in the creek where their bodies were found. Prior to the discovery of the boys' bodies, the searchers were preparing to put a John boat into the main bayou and drag it with grappling hooks looking for the boys. It wasn't long after the three boys' bodies were found that the John boats discovered the two bikes.
0: In, in picture number 58, we have a pipeline that runs across the 10-mile battle right here, um, just north of this area right here is the Hood area, the area where the uh, bodies were found. Uh, on this pipeline right here, this is the east side. Um, uh, as we were looking, these are the bicycles that were uh, reported as the boys were riding that day. We found the bicycles right here on each side of the pipe about midway ways in the pipe. Both of them right there close to each
1: other. At this point, I'm going to do the best I can to try to describe the geographical layout of this crime scene because it is critically important to understanding how this crime went down. Like I mentioned last week, the common misconception here is that the pipe bridge was found through a deep forest, then further into the deep forest would be where the boys were found. And in fact, that's not accurate at all. While working on our investigation in West Memphis, I had a thought looking at the close proximity of the crime scene back to the residential neighborhood that I believed it was so close that you could actually throw a rock from the dead-end street at the end of Macaulay to the location where the bodies were found. And in fact, I did just that. If you can imagine in your mind, the street that borders the west side of this neighborhood, West Macaulay Street, it comes to a dead end about 60 feet from where the pipe bridge crosses the 10-mile bayou. At that dead end street, directly to the left, is the Mayfair Apartments. Two of the apartment buildings right there have a direct, clear view of the area a person would have to walk from the end of that dead end to the pipe bridge, and then again to the pass on the other side of the pipe bridge that lead into the Turtle Hill Woods. On the east side of the dead end street is a house. The backyard that belongs to that house goes right up to the 10-mile bayou. The location where the boys' bodies was found was approximately 75 feet from the back of this backyard. The entire crime scene, everything that we're describing, occurs in less than the size of a football field. When the killer or killers were putting these boys' bodies into the water, they were approximately 150 feet away from a house, an occupied house.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: So the crime scene breaks down as follows. You leave the end of Macaulay Street at the dead end. You walk about 60 feet to the pipe bridge. The pipe bridge crosses the 10 mile bayou and it was about midway across that pipe on the east side where both bikes were found. Then, as you continue across the pipe bridge, there's a path that goes up into the east and leads into the Turtle Hill Woods. After traveling about 30 or 40 feet, you'll come to the small creek that feeds into the Ten Mile Bayou. This is the location where the boys' bodies were found, and this is one of the items that is important to note because it is another common misconception. Many people believe that the boys' bikes and their bodies were found in the same area, in the same creek. And while they were only about 60 to 70 feet apart, they were in two different bodies of water. Again, the bikes were put into the water in the middle of the pipe bridge, and the bodies were found in the narrow creek in the Turtle Hill Woods. Once the boys and the bikes were discovered, the investigators on the scene began cataloging the evidence. And this is where we begin to happen upon mysteries at this crime scene. The first of which was the clothing that was found. This is a list of the items of clothing that were found in the creek. All of these items were either jammed down into the mud with sticks, or had floated up and had been caught by a branch. This is the 14-item list listed in a police report. Blue Boy Scout shirt. White polka dot shirt described as black and white check surface dye. Pair of blue pants. One white tennis shoe, right. Cub Scout blue and yellow cap. One black tennis shoe, purple interior. Blue jeans and blue wallet. One black right tennis shoe with purple interior. Black and white striped shirt with surfboard design. Pair of child's underwear described as multicolored or red. One white left tennis shoe. One size 3 right black tennis shoe and one sock. Pair of blue denim jeans and one size three left black tennis shoe. So here's a summary of the clothing that was recovered. There were three pairs of pants, there were three shirts, there were six shoes. All of that adds up to three boys. But then we find one sock, one pair of underwear, and one cap. Believed to be missing or never found were five socks and two pairs of underwear. This is a fact that has been breezed over by most who have talked about this case, but I find it to be very significant. Where did this clothing go? What happened to these other five socks and the other two pairs of underwear? Now, it's possible two of the boys weren't wearing underwear. It may even be possible that one or two of them weren't wearing socks, but certainly we would expect to find an even number of socks. As I mentioned earlier, this is not a large area of woods. It's a relatively small crime scene. The water was completely drained A so detectives scoured the area for several hours. The only explanation that I can come up with for the missing socks and underwear is that they became dislodged from the bottom and floated downstream. In the next segment, we're going to discuss in detail the injuries to the boys' bodies. But before we get to that, I want to focus for a moment on their bindings. As I mentioned earlier, the condition of the bodies was originally described as them being hog-tied, but in fact, that's not true. To be, quote, hog-tied would mean that your wrists are bound together, and your ankles are bound together, and your wrists and your ankles are then bound together, completely restricting you from moving. Your hands and feet are all stuck behind your back. In this case, however, the boys were not hog-tied. In each of the three instances, their left wrist was bound to their left ankle, and their right wrist was bound to their right ankle. In future episodes, we'll get into the analysis of what this could possibly mean, but I think it's important now to point out the obvious detail that with your wrist and ankles bound left to left and right to right, with six inches of string between the two, it would be very easy to just move your arms back around to the front of your body. This would not be an effective method for restraining someone, so there must be another purpose. The bindings on each of the boys' wrists and ankles have been reported now for decades as being the shoelaces from their own shoes, and that's true for the most part. But while going through the crime scene reports, we find out that one of these things is not like the others. Two of the boys' shoes had black laces, and one of their shoes had white laces. The laces were removed from the boys' shoes you would then have, Four black shoelaces and two white shoelaces. And in fact, that matches up perfectly for the way the boys were bound. Christopher Byers' left wrist was bound to his left ankle with a white shoelace. and His right wrist was bound to his right ankle with a black shoelace. That's one white and one black. Stevie Branch's left wrist was bound to his left ankle with a white shoelace and his right wrist to his right ankle with a black shoelace. Now that's two white shoelaces and two black shoelaces so far. Michael Moore's right wrist was bound to his right ankle with a black shoelace, and his left wrist was bound to his left ankle with a black shoelace. When we add all of these up, we have two white shoelaces and four black shoelaces. But there's just one detail that completely confuses the entire situation. Christopher Byer's shoes were black with a purple interior, and they had black laces on them. When his shoes were recovered, the black laces from his right shoe had been removed, but the black laces from his left shoe were still intact. The laces from Michael Moore's shoes and the laces from Stevie Branch's shoes were both removed. The only shoe that still had laces intact was this one left shoe belonging to Christopher Byers. The problem is our number of available shoelaces and our number of laces that were used to tie the boys up doesn't add up we're left with one mystery black shoelace in the bindings. Now, in the crime scene notes in the autopsy report, the bindings are described as being black shoelaces. However, at trial, Michael Moore's bindings were described as one being a shoelace and one being pieces of black string. While we're on the topic of the bindings, let's take a brief moment here to discuss the knots that were used. One of the theories that has floated around the internet for years was that there were three distinct different types of knots used to tie the boys up. Some have hypothesized that this would indicate that there were clearly three different killers. Three different people tying three different knots. But when we actually look at the evidence of the knots that were tied to bind the boys, what we find is that there were actually only two different types of knots, and one of the types was only used one time. Once the bodies were discovered, the layout of the crime scene was as follows. The furthest body upstream was Michael Moore's. 27 feet away, downstream, was Stevie Branch, and then 5 feet below him was Christopher Byers. It appears that most of the crime scene concealment began with Michael Moore. His was up in the upstream side next to his body where most of the clothing was found jammed into the mud with sticks. It was Michael Moore that has this one different type of knot. The knots on one of the bindings on Michael Moore was described in the report as being a square knot. Now, it's important to note here that if you look up the definition of a square knot, you're going to get a few different answers. But essentially, this one knot on Michael Moore is the only one that requires any amount of skill to tie, and it doesn't require a lot of that. You can accidentally tie a square knot just by crossing the string the opposite direction over what you normally would when you tie a, what most people would just call a knot what's actually referred to as a half hitch. All of the other knots were a series of half hitch knots. Now, in an audio format, this isn't easy to describe, but I'll try to paint this picture for you. When you first begin tying your shoes, you cross the two laces over, then take one of the laces and pass it underneath the other two. That is a half hitch knot. It is what a lot of people refer to as a basic knot. Now, one single half hitch or one single basic knot is not likely to hold in place. That's why most people will double that process two or three times to make sure that the knot is secure. The other five bindings were all series of half-hitch knots. Some were double knots, some were triple knots, but they were all just simple, basic half-hitch. So with the exception of the one square knot, all the bindings were basically tied with the same type of knot. You can interpret that as you will, but it's just simply not accurate to say that there were three distinct different types of knots on the bodies. One of the most widely believed misconceptions in this case is that Christopher Byers sustained more damage in the assault than either of the other two boys. This is mostly based on the fact that Christopher Byers was castrated. Now, as I move along here through the injuries of all three boys, understand that there have been multiple autopsies performed on all three. First, in 1993, the autopsies were performed by Dr. Frank Peretti. Then again, 15 years later, by world-renowned pathologist Dr. Werner Spitz. In today's episode, we're not going to get into an analysis of the injuries. We're simply going to go through point by point each one of the injuries as they were interpreted by Dr. Frank Peretti. We'll start with Christopher Byers. As mentioned earlier, Christopher Byers was found in the shallow creek in about 2 to 4 feet of 60-degree water. The water was thick with mud and was so opaque that you could not see any deeper than the surface. Chris was found nude, with his right wrist bound to his right ankle with a black shoelace. And his left wrist was bound to his left ankle with a white shoelace. Christopher had some bruising on his face and legs, and there was one foreign hair found in the binding on his left ankle. On his right ear, there were some abrasions and bruising. There were also several scratches around his right ear. He also had several scratches on the bridge of his nose and cuts on his lips. On the upper right side of Christopher's chest, there were multiple what appear to be scratches. But the most damaging of all of his injuries occurred on the left side of his head. The left side of Christopher's head had multiple skull fractures and lacerations. Further examination revealed brain hemorrhaging on that side of his head. There appears to be no sign of any sexual assault. Dr. Peretti noted that the anus was dilated, but there was no spermatozoa detected, and no blood detected, and there was no evidence of any injury to the area. The cause of death for Christopher was listed as multiple injuries. However, this is one point where I will note there is a discrepancy between his findings and Dr. Warner Spitz's findings. Peretti does note in his autopsy report that there was bloody vomit as found in the upper and lower airways of Christopher Byers. While Peretti lists the cause of death as multiple injuries, Dr. Werner Spitz determined the cause of death to be drowning. Next, we move on to Michael Moore. Michael Moore was also found in the creek, 32 feet upstream from where Christopher Byers was found, with Stevie Branch in between the two. Michael was also found nude, and his wrists were bound to his ankles. Michael's right wrist was bound to his right ankle with a black shoelace. His left wrist was bound to his left ankle with another black shoelace, but that was later testified to at trial not as being a shoelace, but as being a black string. Michael had bruises on his face and a strand of fabric-like material clenched in his left hand. The left side of his cheek was bruised and his right front scalp area was cut, and his left forehead had a large cut. There was also what was described as a dovetail cut on the left scalp with an upside-down L-shaped bruise. In the front area of the right side of his skull had multiple fractures that were described as being crescent-shaped. There were also multiple hemorrhages found in the right side of Michael's brain. Michael had cuts on both of his hands at the base of his thumbs on the palm side. Michael's cause of death was determined to be drowning. And just like Christopher Byers, Michael's anus was dilated with no signs of spermatozoa or blood and no evidence of injury, and since the dilation of an orifice like this is common after death, especially when in water, it was determined that Michael Moore also was not sexually assaulted. (laughs) Lastly, we move on to Stevie Branch. Contrary to popular belief, Stevie Brant sustained more and worse injuries than either of the other two boys. Like Michael and Christopher, Stevie was also found nude and submerged five feet upstream from where Christopher Byers was found and 27 feet downstream from Michael Moore. Stevie's left wrist was bound to his left ankle with a white shoelace and his right wrist was bound to his right ankle with a black shoelace. The entire left side of Stevie Branch's face was mutilated. He had multiple cuts, abrasions, and bruises and several gouging wounds on the left side of his face ranging from his ear to his cheek to his jaw to his mouth. The right side of Stevie's face was stained with blood when he was removed from the water. (music) On the right side of Stevie's face, there were multiple bruises and scratches near the right eye and the right ear. And he had what is described as a bell-shaped scratch on the right jaw. Stevie's gums had hemorrhaged, and he had multiple scratches on the left side of his scalp. His left ear was also bruised. Several of the wounds on the left side of his face terminate in the left side of his mouth. Dr. Peretti noted edema, which is swelling with fluid on the back of the scalp with several abrasions, and the base of Stevie's skull was fractured. Stevie sustained brain hemorrhages on the left side and the right front of his head. The mid-shaft of Stevie's penis was scratched and bruised and there was a patterned grid impression on the left thigh. He also had multiple bruises on the back of his hands, and bruises on his left upper back. Like the other two, there were no signs of sexual assault. While the anus was dilated, there was no sign of injuries, no spermatozoa, and no blood. Based on three of these factors, we can start to piece together how Stevie, Michael, and Christopher were killed. All three of them sustained severe head wounds, including skull fractures and hemorrhaging of the brain. All three of them were bound in a way that would not restrain a person who is conscious. They would easily be able to move their hands around to the front of their bodies. And all three of them had vomitous, frothy blood and water in their respiratory system. Based on these three factors, it appears that all three of them. Were bludgeoned over the head until they were unconscious, stripped nude, and then bound with their own shoelaces, and then placed in the water for concealment, which ultimately led to their cause of death, which was drowning. It's my belief that all three boys, while unconscious, were still alive when they were put into the water. In future episodes, as we dig deeper into the crime scene analysis and the investigation that followed, we'll dig much deeper into all of these injuries. But for today, that's as far as we're going to go with the injuries. There are two other items of evidence that were collected at the crime scene that were never discussed in any of the documentaries, but could go a long way into solving this case. Or at least they could have back in 1993. The first item I'm referring to were two clear footprints that were found in the mud at the crime scene. One of the banks right near where Michael Moore's body was found, according to investigators, appeared to have been either washed down or wiped down by the killer. The mud was wet and smooth, as though someone was wiping away footprints, handprints, or any other evidence that may have been there. On the other side of the bank, the ravine was much more steep and there was evidence that someone had slid down the bank to get to the creek. All the weeds were laid down and scuffed all the way down to the bottom. In that area, two distinct footprints were found. Brian Ridge in his trial testimony described the two footprints as coming from a tennis shoe, likely one the left foot and the other the right. There'll be photographs of these prints up on our website, truthandjusticepod.com, and you can see that the prints themselves appear to be about 11 inches long, and there's a clearly defined tread in at least one of the footprints. Detective Ridge made a plaster cast of both prints, and they were stored into evidence, but when they didn't match any of the footwear owned by any of the three people who were ultimately convicted of this crime, nothing else was ever done with them. They were never compared to anyone else's shoe prints other than to rule out the detectives and police officers that were working the scene that afternoon. To this day, we don't know who these footprints belong to. A crime scene in the woods, and in a creek no less, is one of the most difficult areas we could ever think of to try to gather evidence to solve a crime. Especially when we have what appears to be a very criminally sophisticated killer who spent a lot of time and a lot of attention trying to conceal the crime scene. All the children's clothes were wrapped in sticks and pushed into the mud. The bodies were wedged down under the surface of the water. And even the bank of the creek was wiped down so as to not leave any prints or tracks. However, it appears that whoever killed these three boys and tried to conceal the crime scene did in fact make one critical mistake.
0: It was at the crime scene. Uh, we were searching for the boys, the three boys. We come into Robin Hood Hills. Uh, we found a ditch there. At that time, we found uh, a sock and a tennis shoe, a young boy's tennis shoe. At that time, Brian Ridge went off in the water where the tennis shoe was. And... Mike Allen went in the water. When they bumped into one of the children, floated up, they started downstream, and then I jumped in the water and started going upstream. As we found the three bodies, we pulled them out. and We just shut it down, there was a crime scene at that time. Later on, as I was walking around, I found this fingerprint in the mud. It was an indention into the mud and I seen that it was a fingerprint or a print. I don't know that it was a fingerprint. It might have been a side of a palm. It might have been the side of it. but I, in my opinion, I believe that it was a thumbprint or a fingerprint. Was there anything else around it that, that you saw? Any other any other prints, be, uh, be it fingerprints, shoe prints, anything like that? Nothing that I could find. How close to it would you you think it was in relation to the the three the boys' bodies? Uh, if I remember correctly, it was within five to ten feet before we found the first body. Now the uh, the print that you saw um, could you tell uh, uh, if it was made from someone that was either would be either on the bank facing the water or in the water facing going towards the bank it was somebody was in the water i'm sure because it was at a 45 degree angle from the water you're the one that found this yes sir okay uh, did you photograph it at the time the camera equipment and side light and put the side light on it and photographed it what i'm going to show you here is that this is a basically a picture of a picture and this is appear to be a polaroid photograph um do you recognize what's what's on that photograph yes sir that's the partial print that i photographed okay can you tell me um uh, who all was down in that area that actually got into the water or along the bank brian ridge and, and uh, mike allen were down in the water and then I went down in the water and uh, I don't remember who all was around there I mean there was a bunch of us. Did you find this print before it got congested down there? Uh, yeah it was just about the time that, that we found the body I mean after we found the three boys it was we were looking the area over and I spotted this. Okay and <clears throat> were you did you ever do anything more with this with this photograph yes yes uh we took fingerprints of the three boys at a later date well, you say three boys which ones are you talking about three three victims of the homicide oh, the three young boys okay every police officer that was at the scene and then some that wasn't at the scene we fingerprinted anybody that we felt like we needed questioning, and we fingerprinted them. So I checked hundreds of prints against this
1: latent here. Tony Anderson tested this fingerprint against hundreds of people. He was not able to find anyone who matched the print. However, he was able to rule out everyone that was tested against it, including every officer that was on the scene, officers that weren't even on the scene, and any and all suspects in the case, including the three who were ultimately convicted. And Tony Anderson was able to conclusively say that this print didn't belong to any of them. The West Memphis Police Department didn't waste any time beginning their investigation. And in fact, their first lead, pointing to a possible suspect, actually came in before the boys were ever found. On May 5th, the night the boys went missing, around 9.30 p.m., a man described as having mud on his feet with blood dripping off of him, stumbled his way into the Bojangles restaurant that was right next to the Ten Mile Bayou. That's where the investigation began. That's where we're going next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Executive producer is Mike Bussing and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Special thank you to Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com for creating our Season 5 logo, Thank you to Katie Ross and Chris Brinkley for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. Thank you to our transcription team, Anna Dindorf, Sarah Mueller, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. You can always call in a tip or leave a voicemail with a comment or a question to our voicemail line at 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.